Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Buddhist Studies podcast. I'm Lena Vercherie, one of the hosts of the channel, and today's guest is Charles Jones, Associate Professor and Director of the Religion and Culture Graduate Program in the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America. He'll be speaking with us today about his new book, Chinese Pure Land Buddhism, Understanding a Tradition of Practice, which just came out in the Pure Land Buddhist Studies series with University of Hawaii Press. Jones is the author of several articles and books, including Buddhism in Taiwan, Religion in the State, 1660 to 1990, which was and remains a foundational work in the field. And now Jones is once again breaking new ground with this study of Chinese Pure Land Buddhism, which is the first book in any Western language to provide a comprehensive overview of Chinese Pure Land, a notably understudied area in Western language Buddhist studies scholarship. In this work, Jones explores many of the core doctrines, practices, and controversies of Chinese Pure Land Buddhism, situating them historically and in the modern period, and draws on a wealth of previously unexamined primary sources, many of which he is making available to readers in English translation for the very first time. This book challenges us to rethink many longstanding assumptions about Chinese Pure Land Buddhism. Some of these assumptions pertain, for instance, to the nuanced relation of self-power and other power as conceived in the Chinese tradition, the notion of the pure land as a so-called easy path appealing to non-elite practitioners, debates about how the pure land itself was thought to exist in the world, and actually the very complex and multifaceted practice of nianfo, or nembutsu in Japanese, Buddha recollection in English, as well as the deeply fraught question of the historical development of the so-called lineage of Pure Land patriarchs. So we will be diving into all of this and much more in the course of our upcoming conversation. So with that, I would like to welcome Charles Jones to the podcast. Chuck, thank you so much for being here. It's a real pleasure to have you. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So there is so much to get into with this book, but I would like to begin by actually traveling back in time a little bit to ask you about your background. Um, When were you first introduced to Buddhism? What got you interested in Buddhist studies and in the study of Chinese Buddhism in particular? Well, those questions are all actually related in a very interesting way. Um, I never had any religion courses as an undergraduate. Um, And after I graduated uh, from my undergraduate with a degree in music, I bounced around for a while doing a number of things, uh, worked construction for a while. um, But I continued to read, and after a while, I noticed that pretty much everything I was reading was in the area of religion. And when I was living in Durham, North Carolina, near Duke University back in the early to mid-1980s, I went into a bookstore and picked up a book on Christian prayer. It was by Roger Corliss, and I read through it. I enjoyed it. And when I looked at the dust flap 
I noticed in the author blurb that Dr. Corliss uh, was a professor at Duke University right there in Durham. And so I thought, well, this is interesting. He lives right here in town. And uh, being back in the dark ages before we had email, I wrote a note, popped it in an envelope and sent it to him just to say I had enjoyed his book. The next thing I know, he called me to invite me to go have lunch with him. And this, and this was the beginning of a friendship that lasted for about seven years as I was uh, working various jobs. After a bit, um, I joined a town and gown choir that Duke University ran that specialized in Renaissance and medieval music. And lo and behold, he was in the tenor section. So every Monday after rehearsal, he and I would go together to the East Campus Coffee House and we would talk. And he told me a lot about Buddhism. Uh, he showed me that Chinese language wasn't as scary as I thought it might be. And he introduced me to Pure Land Buddhism at that time. It uh, was one of the things he had studied. You know, his, his own doctoral dissertation had been on uh, Tan Luan, and he'd published on that um, after completing his doctorate. And the day finally came when I said, you know, I am really wanting to pursue this at a deeper level. What do I need to do? I asked him, of course, can I study with you at Duke University? And he said, I would actually be much better going to the University of Virginia and studying with Paul Groner. So um, he put me in touch with Dr. Groner, uh, who advised me that I needed to get a start immediately on studying some Asian language if they were even going to consider my application. So I started commuting down the road to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to study Chinese. I fell in love with the language from the very first day and still consider myself a student, you know, constantly trying to get better at it. And um, so I've always thought that whatever strengths I bring to the enterprise, it's, it's a kind of a combination of the influence of Roger Corliss and Paul Groner. Corliss had a very wide-ranging mind. He could make connections between things that seemed to be very far apart from each other, and his way of kind of working through things really fascinated me. Um, Groner, of course, was very systematic, very well-trained, and very uh, a central figure uh, to this day, even in his retirement, in the study of East Asian Buddhism. And so I felt uh, between the two of them, I got the best of both possible worlds. Um, so that's the story of, you know, why I'm in this enterprise at all. And the book is, in fact, dedicated to Dr. Corliss. Uh, he literally, without him, I would not be in this business at all. He's the one that uh, encouraged me, sparked my interest, and um, convinced me that this was something I should pursue. Wow. And we're all very glad that you have pursued it. Um, and what is it that led you to this particular topic? Because you just told us a bit about how you got into Buddhism, how you fell in love with the Chinese language. What led you to the study of Chinese Pure Land Buddhism? And what about this particular moment in your career led you to write this book at this time? Well, bear in mind that the moment you're talking about has lasted 20 years. <laughs> so, uh, let's go back. Um, you mentioned in the introduction that my first book was a study of uh, Buddhism in Taiwan. Um, how I got interested in that topic remains a complete mystery to me. Uh, at the end of my first semester during my doctoral program, I had a meeting, all the doctoral students did, 
with a committee of the uh, religious studies department at UVA just to check up on us and say, how's your progress going and all that. And one of the questions they asked me is, what will your dissertation be on? I had never given it a moment's thought, and I just blurted out, Buddhism in Taiwan. I don't know why. But it stuck. And so I ended up spending two and a half years living in Taiwan between 1992 and 1994, uh, first going to the Stanford uh, Center to brush up my Chinese as much as I could, and then to do a field study of some Buddhist temples there. Um, so I started researching the background of Buddhism in Taiwan as a way of providing context and background, but then two things happened. One, the field site I was going to study said they didn't really want me to do that, and they threw me out. And the second thing was I noticed nobody had ever done any real research on Buddhism in Taiwan. And so what had been intended to be just chapter one quickly became two chapters and three chapters. And when I got back to UVA, I told Dr. Groner I couldn't do the field study, but uh, I've amassed enough material here to do a history of Buddhism in Taiwan. So we quickly assembled a new committee and off I went with that. But I had originally gone intending to do a field study. And so a temple that I ended up spending a lot of time at uh, because of a connection that Dr. Groner had with the vice abbot. Many of the listeners to the podcast will know who I'm talking about. It's uh, Venerable Dr. Hui Min, um, invited me to spend as much time as I could out there. So I started going every week uh, down to the Xilian Jingyuan, or the Pure Garden of the Western Lotus in uh, Sanxia in Taiwan. Now, what was particular about that temple was it advertised itself as a pure land practice site, a Jingtu Daochang. And so I went for different events that they had. And I tell this story in the preface of the book because it really is the incident that got the ball rolling. I was visiting there one day and the guest prefect was showing me around the grounds and it just happened they had a Buddha recitation retreat going, a three-day retreat called a Fuosan. And he took me to the main shrine hall as the people were all gathered sitting in meditation, which I had never really heard that meditation was part of the Pure Land tradition before. But I had heard about the dual practice of Chan and Pure Land during my doctoral program. And so I instantly said, well, are they doing the Pure Land koan? And the guest prefect looked pretty unhappy at that and said, this is not a Chan temple. They are doing pure land practice, pure and simple. They are meditating on the name of Amitabha so that they can be reborn in the pure land when they die. And at that moment, it occurred to me that I had never heard about this in my doctoral program, that uh, what I had learned in the late 80s to early 90s about Pure Land was all based on Japanese Pure Land Buddhism, and that it hadn't really prepared me for what I was going to encounter in Taiwan. So I began looking into the matter and finding that there were a lot of anomalies, that um, they did not divide self-power from other power the way uh, Japanese Pure Land sects since the Kamakura period had. Um, they really 
placed an emphasis on keeping precepts and doing very serious practice to the best of one's ability. So uh, people were very actively involved in the process. And so when I got back and finished the dissertation and finished getting it published as a book, I had already decided I didn't really want to work on Buddhism in Taiwan anymore because it was uh, just too much uh, religion and politics, uh, restricting yourself to just what happens to be happening in a certain geographical zone. I would say it's like studying Christianity in Montana. Um, you, you just have to settle with whatever happens to be going on there. And I really wanted to be in religious studies, not not political science. So I thought looking into Chinese Pure Land Buddhism might be an interesting avenue to follow. So I began publishing a set of articles beginning in the early 2000s, um, pursuing that topic. But anybody who knows me knows I'm totally ADHD. Um, I jump from one thing to another. And so even by following uh, leads in Chinese Pure Land Buddhism back to the late Ming Dynasty, I somehow got into late Ming Dynasty gentry Buddhism because some of the figures I, was, I, I had to encounter were people like Zhao Hong and Yuan Hongdao, who were very much part of the gentry Buddhist revival of the late Ming. And somewhere in the course of that, I also tripped over the threshold into the Jesuit missions in China as well. And so for a while, I got away from the Pure Land materials. I published a few things on uh, gentry Buddhism, and I published some translations and studies of the Jesuit missions. But then in, I think, about 2012, I was at a conference in Vancouver. Uh, it was one of those IASBS conferences, so it was really focused on Pure Land, and so uh, to present a paper there. For the first time in quite a while, I had gone back to the Pure Land materials and, and worked up something for that. So when I showed up, I was confronted with a a lot of younger scholars who made it very clear that uh, Chinese Pure Land Buddhism is what they felt they needed me to be doing. Um, and so I can take a hint. And I started getting back into it once again and producing some new studies. Uh, this led to conversations with Richard Payne, uh, who at the time was the dean of the Institute for Buddhist Studies and, of course, the series editor of the, of the uh, Pure Land Buddhist Studies series. And we began talking about how to uh, turn what I was doing into a book. And I thought, well, maybe a collected essays kind of volume would be good. But he wanted something that would hang together a little better. And it also struck me that there was something that was missing from everything I had done before, and that was a, a statement of what the Chinese Pure Land tradition is. And so the part of this that's new and that I think became the linchpin that holds everything else together is the second chapter after the introduction called very modestly, What is the Chinese Pure Land Tradition?, in which I try to sort out um, what exactly we're talking about and, and why Western scholars have up till now not really been able to identify it very well. 
with that, I think we've segued into talking about the book. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in what you just said, I think we have the uh, seeds of every question that I have for you about this book, because you really touched on so many different aspects. Um, but before we unpack all of those things, I actually want to ask you first about the very, very, very beginning, even before the first page, which is the title of the book. So uh, you've called this Chinese Pure Land Buddhism, Understanding a Tradition of Practice. So I want to first ask you about this word practice. I noticed this is a kind of guiding thread throughout the book. And so I wanted to ask you what kind of issues you're highlighting with this word choice, you know, in contrast to like any number of other categories that we usually use to talk about religion, doctrine, theology, belief, etc. So basically, what what work is this notion of practice doing for you? And how are you using it to challenge some of the longstanding assumptions that we sometimes bring to the study of Pure Land Buddhism? Okay. Well, first of all, it's not the term practice. It is tradition of practice. That's the full term that I want to use as a way of designating um, what we're studying here. Now, part of the reason for that is previous attempts to see it as uh, using the word zong uh, hadn't really taken us very far because that echoes too much the Japanese traditions. You know, the equivalent of zong in Japanese is shu. And so Jing Tu Zong would be like Jodo Shu. And previous scholars had tried to identify it in that way and found that it really didn't work. So we had some studies uh, already in the literature talking about what this thing isn't, but nothing saying really with some precision what it is. Now, the miracle of our modern electronic age is I can now go into C-beta and find terms pretty rapidly. So I went ahead and searched for the term Jing Tu Zong to see if it occurred in the traditional literature, and I found it really didn't. If you search for that, you will get some hits, but what you find is the word Zong is actually always part of a compound, like Zongzhi or Zongchi. So it's always uh, had the meaning of like a cardinal principle or a leading tenet of something. It was never, ever used prior to the late 19th century to talk about any kind of sociological formation or ideological thing. It doesn't designate a sect. It doesn't designate anything uh, resembling a group of people. So I went back to the drawing board and I asked, well, how does the traditional literature talk about this? And I found the term that you find hundreds of times is Jing Tu Faman. So in the tradition, it is always regarded as a Dharma gate. So this led to the question, what is a Dharma gate? And uh, it's a term we write about a lot. It stares us in the face in almost any aspect of East Asian Buddhism we uh choose to research, but we will usually just leave it untranslated as homon or famen, or just translate it literally as dharmagate, but I don't think we've ever really thought about what it means. So I started on a word study to see what does it mean to say uh, the Pure Land Dharmagate, and what I discovered in every passage in which I found the term 
is that it referred to a practice. Whatever a Dharma gate is, it is something you put into practice. But I also found that it wasn't just practice, and that's why I don't limit this to practice, but I, I choose to translate Fahmen as tradition of practice because the Dharma gate also included the literature and the discourse that supports the practice. So it's not just the practice, it's also the explanatory discourse from which the practice makes sense, how you explain to people why they're doing what they're doing, how you defend it against detractors. Now, this is very different from talking about a sect or a denomination. Um, and just for a point of comparison, since I work at the Catholic University of America, I, I sort of swim in this culture all the time. Think about Marian devotions, you know, devotions to the Virgin Mary in Roman Catholicism. It is something available to all Roman Catholics. It's not a separate sect within Roman Catholicism. Nevertheless, it occupies a discrete space. It is something people can choose to do if it appeals to them and they're inclined to it. There are liturgies that people compose to help people do it. There are books and treatises that people write outlining the theology of it. There are apologetic works written for those uh, occasions when the practice is being attacked. All of those are part of the tradition of Marian devotionalism. And as such, it occupies its own distinct space, and it is spoken about within Roman Catholicism as something separate, something identifiable that's different from other traditions of practice like the Jesus Prayer. So that, to me, solved the whole riddle of what this is. It is something available to any East Asian Buddhist who wants to take it up. Um, nevertheless, it still occupies a discrete, identifiable space, and it constitutes an object within the wider field of East Asian Buddhism within its own right, not to be confused with other traditions of practice like Chan or scripture chanting or other things which have their own practices supported by their own explanatory discourses. So it seemed to me that the term tradition of practice was just the right term to capture all of that. And it seemed to really to be the shoe that was going to fit. Yeah, this really seems to be one of the uh, major contributions in this book is like, I think you're giving us a language uh, through which we can both acknowledge, as you very well highlight, the kind of syncretic and diffuse nature of pure land practices, but still you give us, you know, a sense of the tradition as a distincted distinctive and bounded part of Chinese Buddhism. So the way that you're able to navigate that, I think, is very helpful. Well, let me, um, let me interject one thing here. You use the word syncretic, and people have in the past, say, talked about Chan Pure Land syncretism. I've come to think that that doesn't really make sense in this context. If you were to find, say, a Roman Catholic who is practicing both Marian devotions and the Jesus prayer, or daily scripture reading, you wouldn't call that the syncretism of Marian devotionalism and scripture reading. They are both uh, accepted practices within a single religious uh, framework. And so from the Chinese side itself, the word syncretism would make no sense if you explained, to, I think, to any Chinese Buddhism what you meant by that, uh, it, a, a kind of illegitimate mixing of separate traditions as a kind of a mashup. 
Um, what Zhu Hong was doing with the dual practice was simply affirming to anybody who had trouble with this that these aren't in conflict. You can do them both. There, there's no problem there. Yes. And that, that again, is also like such a helpful distinction and nuance that I think you tease out throughout this whole book that um, I was going to save the question for Chan and Pure Land for a little later. But actually, since you bring it up, maybe it would be an opportunity to outline a few of the, the main ideas and debates that um, you hone in on. Uh, regarding that set of issues, and maybe also actually here jump into another point that you've already touched on a little bit, but I think is important to underscore, which is the major impact that Japanese scholarship on Pure Land Buddhism has had on the study of Pure Land in general, and sort of uh, the way that you highlight the need to revisit some of those sectarian models that uh, maybe make sense in the Japanese context, but that you argue might be kind of misleading when projected into the Chinese landscape. So, so so perhaps could you unpack a little bit of that material for us here? Right. And that comes largely out of the generation in which I did my doctoral training. Um, there was a time, I don't think there is now, uh, but back in from the 70s through the 80s, I would hear scholars of East Asian Buddhism say that you should study literary Chinese, but not spoken Chinese or modern Chinese, and learn Japanese as your kind of spoken language proficiency. The reason being that, and, and this is what I was told explicitly by more than one person, there is no real Chinese scholarship worth consulting. The Japanese have really mastered the literature of all of East Asian Buddhism, so they're the ones you go to. Uh, for the secondary scholarship. So this is what I learned. Uh, this is uh, what was uh, drilled into me. I always thought it was extremely gracious of Paul Groner. Anybody who knows him knows he is completely fluent in Japanese. He knows all the Japanese scholars. He still allowed me to pursue Chinese as my language of spoken proficiency and to start making scholarly contacts. When I arrived in Taiwan in 1992, I think Chinese scholarship was really starting to take off. And uh, anybody in the field now who studies Chinese religion just takes it for granted that the Chinese scholars are perfectly fine conversation partners. They know their stuff. They're good to talk to. But in my day, you didn't take that for granted. So it means all of the secondary scholarship I read was derived from Japanese scholarship. Uh, now, even Ken Tanaka, in his book on um, Jing Ying Huiyuan, noted that in his first chapter, that uh, he was, in a sense, rebelling to some extent against the accepted Japanese scholarship in studying that figure who the Japanese tradition didn't regard as all that important. Um, but it does mean that the scholarship of these uh, very excellent people was uh, many of whom worked in sectarian pure land universities in Japan tended to read from the Japanese traditional point of view into the Chinese materials. Uh, and so they read, say, Tan Luan as the person who definitively separated self power from other power and recommended total reliance on other power. Which, if you read Tan Luan in context, he really doesn't do that. Um, and I participated in, in 
the production of the English translation of Mochizuki Shinko's you know, history of uh, Chinese pure land thought. Uh, and I noted as I read through it that Mochizuki very frequently weighs in on who among his Chinese subjects is orthodox and heterodox, and it's usually based on Jodo Shu categories. So methodologically, when I decided I was really going to approach the Chinese tradition uh, and as a fresh start, I consciously decided just to set aside the Japanese scholarship, at least provisionally, and just get directly into the Chinese primary sources with fresh eyes and ask myself, what are these authors saying you know, in, their own, in their own voice and see what emer- emerged from that. Yeah, and that's something that I think we'll come back to in a moment when we talk a little bit about what you say about the relation between other power and self-power in the Chinese context, right? But before we get into that, um, staying with some of the methodological issues, one thing that really jumped out to me in this book is, when I think we see this a little bit in your previous book on Buddhism in Taiwan, is that you address um, longstanding debates in Chinese Buddhism about whether the pure land is a really extant, actual, physical place, right? Um, As opposed to other views that say maybe it's a metaphor or a construction of the mind. And I think this kind of question about, um, I guess we could say scriptural literalism versus what we might call, you know, demythologization or something, is something we tend to see as a quintessentially modern question. But actually, you trace some lines of this debate all the way back to very early Buddhist sources. Um, So I'm wondering if you can walk us through these two different ways of conceptualizing the pure land that um, you say, in fact, Chinese Buddhism inherited from India. And tell us a bit about the key controversies and, and also the textual sources involved in that debate. Okay. Well, if you go all the way back to India, uh, you find conflicting statements depending on which scripture you read. The so-called three Pure Land Sutras tend to portray the Pure Land of Amitabha Buddha, or in fact of any Buddha, as situated in space somehow or another. Um, This may have something to do with the development of mandalas. Uh, which gave you a sort of a sacred map of the cosmos to be used for ritual purposes. Um, But it may also go back to very practical concerns about what are you doing in the practice of visualization? Uh, Because this practice starts with visualizing the Buddha and visualizing what a pure Buddha land would look like. And for that to happen, you need a concrete image to visualize. You, you can't visualize the Dharmakaya very well. You can, but you can visualize a Sambhogakaya, a, a complete reward body of a Buddha, and a very richly described land. And so things like the Contemplation Sutra or the two Sakavati Vyuha Sutras I think what really are geared toward visualization practice will present the pure land using very concrete language. They want to give you something to visualize, something you can work with. But on the other hand, most philosophically sophisticated Buddhists in both India and China accepted the idea that everything is mind only. 
that what you're perceiving as an external world is really a series of images that play in the mind um, arising from the deep storehouse consciousness. And in that way, don't exist as they appear and are ultimately ungraspable. Now, if you fast forward to China, as you see the development um, in the fifth and sixth and seventh centuries of a nascent Pure Land Buddhism that starts appealing more and more to non-elite practitioners, especially after Shandao. Part of the way this spreads is by assuring people that there is a Pure Land, that it exists off to the West, and when they die, they will go to it. For more philosophically minded Buddhists, this seems illegitimate or a kind of dumbing down or pandering uh, for the sake of the masses. And so you start to get competing discourses versus uh, what in Chinese came to be called Western direction pure land, uh, Xifang Jingtu, versus mind only pure land, uh, Wei Xin Jingtu. Now, the thing that is interesting to me is these are rarely seen as actually being in direct conflict. Um, it is primarily between uh, practitioners of Chan and practitioners of Pure Land that these debates emerge. From the Chan side, the argument is generally that this is all illegitimate, that by saying this is an impure land, that's a pure land, we are worldlings, Amitabha is a Buddha, etc., etc. You're engaging in dualistic thinking that ultimately doesn't hold up. Now, the Pure Land side never debated whether all reality is really mind only. They said, you're actually right about that. They conceded that point. But they said, still, that would be true not just of Amitabha's Pure Land, but of anything. The coffee cup sitting in front of you right now is mind only in exactly the same sense that Amitabha's Pure Land is. But it takes a very deep level of enlightenment to really take that on board and to understand the mind only nature of things. And so, what they would stress is that the Western direction construct is an upaya, it's a skillful means for people who just aren't there yet. And that when you get to the Pure Land and you're instructed by the Buddha Amitabha, you will at that point come to realize that it was all mind only all along. You will actually come to see the truth of mind only. And at that point, you'll be enlightened. And so the uh, main argument back to the people saying, no, it can only be mind only was you're denying that the Buddha can employ skillful means. And by the way, you know, how much hubris are you declaring are you, are you displaying by saying you've grasped this truth? Uh, Yuan Hongdao had a very interesting way of putting it back in his uh, Xifang Holun of 1599. He said, once you've really grasped the mind-only nature of everything, and if you really can see the non-duality of purity and impurity, he said, jump in a cesspool and swim around for a while. And report back to me about how you're enjoying its inherent purity, or get in bed with a leper and snuggle up to him. <laughs> and and if you can and if you can really say I am 
fully aware of how all of this transcends any dualistic notions of purity and impurity, then fine, you just go right ahead. But if you can't do those things, then maybe you actually need this upaya and maybe you should start practicing yenfo and try to get reborn in the pure land. Yeah. So this is, I mean, you do such a good job. And I think I'd uh, uh, direct readers towards, I think, chapter three is where you have a great discussion of of how, in fact, in the Chinese tradition, we see that these two ostensibly contradictory views, right, Western direction pure land versus mind only pure land, actually are presented in a much more kind of um, complementary way. Um, but you actually bring in also bringing it into the modern period a third way that the pure land was conceptualized uh, in the 20th century in particular, which kind of critiqued both Western direction pure land and the mind only idea of the pure land and instead introduced this notion of the pure land in the human realm. Right. This was famously coined by the reformer monk Taishu. So I'd like to ask you two questions, actually, about this. First, could you just summarize for us basically uh, Taishu's position, his, his, his main argument? And then secondly, tell us about how your assessment of Taishu d- differs, actually, in important ways from some previous scholarship on him that presents him kind of as this radical breaking away from traditional Buddhist ideas. So in other words, how you see Taishu as both a radical reformer, but also kind of more of a traditionalist than we previously thought. Um, yes, so please. Okay. Yeah, so in his uh, work uh, on establishing the pure land in the human realm, Uh, He criticizes contemporary Chinese Buddhists, that would be the first half of the 20th century, as some of them being too optimistic and some of them being too pessimistic. If they're too pessimistic, then they think this world simply cannot be salvaged and there's no point even trying to do any kind of political reform or social action. And of course, when he's writing, this is during the time of the warlords before the Northern Expedition, and there really is a lot of bad stuff going on. Um, And so they just want to recite the Buddha's name and escape this world to this paradise off to the West. Uh, So that would line up with the Western direction, Pure Land position. On the other hand, he said some of them were too optimistic, and they said, everything is already perfect as it is, and nothing really needs to be changed. These he lined up with those holding the mind-only Pure Land position who would say all of this apparently defiled reality is actually all inherently very pure and there's nothing you really need to do except realize its inherent purity. So neither of those positions equipped anyone to really address concrete social, political, or any other kind of human problem. So he posited this idea of building the Pure Land in the human realm as a way of uh, providing a warrant for actual engagement with the world at hand, trying to do uh, social justice work, uh, peace work, whatever you wanted to get into. Now, the problem is most scholars that I've looked at assume that he means people to do this instead of any other kind of traditional practice, that what he's recommending, and I quote a few people in the book as saying that he wanted to tell people, don't 
seek rebirth in the Western land of utmost bliss. Don't go off on some airy fantasy about how it's all inherently pure. You know, build the pure land here and now through social work. And based upon that, some people have translated this term renjianjingtu uh, just as earthly pure land. Okay. Now, I have read through, and in fact, I've completely translated this work. And it, it's the centerpiece of a book I'm working on now. Mm, excellent. And so I found he actually does nothing of the sort. Uh, and so the reason I stick to this very clunky translation, pure land in the human realm, rather than something nice like earthly pure land, something a little more smooth, is because in this work, Taishu still maintains a completely traditional Buddhist cosmology. Mm-hmm. And so for him, the human realm indicates anywhere in the Buddhist cosmos where human beings are reborn. So it's not just this earth. It's the northern continent of Uttarakuru. It's the inner court of the Tushita heaven with Maitreya. And it's Amitabha's pure land as well, because the scriptures say devas and humans occupy the pure land. So the human realm means any of those places, not just this earth. And second, he never saw a conflict between doing social work here and now and attaining rebirth. In fact, he says very explicitly in two different passages, you can work all you want to bring about improvement to modern society, establish peace, security of life and property and all that stuff, but you're still going to die. And you still need to think about what happens after that. And he recommends seeking rebirth in Amitabha's Pure Land. In fact, he totally reproduces all 48 of Amitabha's vows as part of this uh, text. So Taishu, um, contrary to what we've been led to think, never deployed this term Pure Land in the human realm to dissuade people from any kind of traditional Buddhist worldview or practice he put it out there as a way of saying, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and the modern master Sheng Yen actually took him up on this. And, and in, in a way, uh, Taishu tends to be kind of eclectic and jumps from topic to topic. But Sheng Yen has actually been very systematic in pointing out how you need all three of these views, Western direction, pure land, and the aspiration to be reborn there a realization of the mind-only nature of pure land, and a willing to engage in building the pure land here and now for all of this to work to the best effect. You need all of these. So there's no contradiction. That, that was the real surprise there. Wow. So I am so glad to hear that this is the topic of your forthcoming book, about which I have about 100 questions right now, but I will save that for the very end of the podcast. Um, and instead, I do want to stay on the topic of this book, because actually, um, there's some really meaty, uh, pure land kind of doctrinal and ethical concerns that you get into in this book. One of the central paradoxes, which you point out, that lies at the very heart of pure land doctrine is, and I will actually quote you here, is that it risks of running afoul, you say, of the law of karma, right? This is a very basic kind of problem in pure land, which is that you know, if according to Pure Land Doctrine, a very evil person, you know, whose karma should land them in hell for lifetimes and lifetimes, can instead just be reborn in this fabulous 
pure land, um, where they'll stay until they reach Buddhahood. The whole issue is, well, you know, if this, you know, it's a great place to be. And ostensibly, this totally evil person essentially achieves the same status that would be traditionally reserved for a very advanced bodhisattva who's been doing good and virtuous practice for lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes. So in terms of this ethical problem, tell us a bit about how Pure Land apologists have responded to this critique and also maybe tell us about how you see the Pure Land tradition dealing with the risk of antinomianism that you go into a bit in the book, which is this idea that, you know, if even sinners are guaranteed a spot in the Pure Land, then we might as well just make the most of it and sin as much as possible and not bother with any kind of spiritual or ethical practice. So what are some of the ways that Pure Land Buddhists have responded to these sorts of, these sorts of problems? Well, first of all, it hardly ever comes up. Um, most of the texts don't even see a conflict and simply presume that people practicing the Pure Land Dharma Gate are also engaged in other Buddhist practices and are trying to take precepts, live moral lives, and uh, make as much progress along the path as they can. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's never even addressed. The one place where I really saw it articulated clearly was in the 13th century uh, Author Wei uh, Zetianru in his Jing Tu Huowen Questions About Pure Land, where somebody actually says, Well, if Amitabha is just going to save me on my deathbed, why don't I just live my life and just take up the practice when I'm dying? So even there, it doesn't bring up the question of doing evil. It's just, you know, why don't I just stop? Uh, why don't I just not start the practice until it's time? And Tianru just says, Basically, that's a really dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, he says, you don't know how or when you're going to die, for one thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people on the deathbed kind of, uh, their minds go a little bit out. You can't be sure that you're going to be real clear-minded uh, when the moment comes. So go ahead and get the practice going now uh, so that you'll be in the habit and it'll be more likely that on your deathbed you'll be, you'll be doing it. So the question never really comes up, and uh, most especially the question that Shinran and Honen faced in Japan about the so-called question of licensed evil, mm -hmm. you know, de deliberately doing evil to elicit more of Amitabha's grace, that right. just never, never, ever makes an appearance. So I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is the very fact that Pure Land never did become a sectarian movement in China. Mm-hmm. So whatever ethical considerations uh, were going to happen had to be in conversation with all of Chinese Buddhism. Uh, there were Vinaya masters who were already weighing in on you know, precepts and how they're validly transmitted, people writing on Buddhist morals. So there was never a need uh, for Pure Land to develop its own ethics because it was never fenced off from the rest of Chinese Buddhism in that way. Now, the main crux of the problem goes back to what is the relationship between self-power and other power. And yes. so uh, I have to start with the chapter before the one on ethics and point out that Chinese Pure Land thinkers never, ever said self-power is useless. What they did say is it's foolish to rely on it solely because you probably don't have enough power to achieve complete liberation and Buddhahood in this lifetime. And most people were perfectly happy to agree with that. That seemed self-evident. 
Um, but they never said, therefore, rely only on Amitabha to do mm-hmm. all the work. Instead, they all, in you know, using various kinds of metaphors, uh, talked about a sort of synergy between self-power and other power. And so this is a good place for me to put out the metaphor that I've used very often that people seem to find very useful, which is that if you look at Pure Land texts in India, it seems like getting to the Pure Land is like climbing a staircase. You just have to walk up. Now, if you go to Japan, uh, to the post-Kamakura period Pure Land schools, getting to the Pure Land seems to be like riding in an elevator. It does all the lifting. You can walk around in little circles inside it if you want to, but it's not going to help. You're you're not going to speed things up. You're adding nothing. But in China, it's an escalator. And uh, I always think about uh, the uh, subway system here in Washington, D.C. has a station that supposedly has the deepest metro station with the longest escalator in the entire Western Hemisphere. And (laughs) I've been to it. It it takes a long time to get to the top. you know, so if you really don't have the power to make it, it will carry you mm-hmm. all the way, but it will take longer. If you can walk and add your power to the escalator, you can make it to the top sooner. So that seemed to be the rationale for going ahead and doing practice. You could actually, you know, contribute something. You and Amitabha were working together. Uh, now, sometimes this was approached through the mechanism of ganying, you know, sympathetic resonance. resonance. Yes, right. A term which goes all the way back to the Warring States period in China. You see it in Xunzi. Um, but in this Buddhist context, it I, I think of it like if you if you think of your own consciousness as a radio receiver, if you can tune it to Amitabha's frequency, then Amitabha will beam through. <laughs> um, and so the purpose of doing nianfo is to get into that relationship of sympathetic resonance with Amitabha. And some of the imagery used to, to convey this can be uh, very interesting, like uh, the Qing dynasty figure, Jixing Chaowu, talks about you holding Amitabha in mind, while at the same time Amitabha is holding you in mind. You are both images in each other's consciousness and thus very much sort of intertwined with each other such that making a clean distinction between self and other, you can't even really do it. But Yuan Hongdao uh, has some more homely metaphors. He says, uh, you maybe can't row a boat all the way across the ocean, but you can raise a sail and catch the power of the wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you still need to be the one raising the sail. You still have to do that. Uh, and so your effort still counts for something. Right. So there was a reason to throw in your own effort. Now, at the end of that chapter, I then say, but it still remains true that the total miscreant on their deathbed, and I, I keep going back to the stories from the Le Bang Wen Lei about the chicken slaughterers and mm-hmm. the butchers yeah. uh, who are rescued from visions of hell and imminent rebirth in hell by just chanting the name of Amitabha and then poof, there you are in the pure land. You know, you know, if they can be saved, then there really is still a valid question to ask, okay, why should I contribute my own effort when apparently Amitabha can do the whole thing? Why should I walk up the escalator at all, even one step, when I can just stand there and it'll still get me where I need to go? 
So for this, they appealed to the nine levels of rebirth in the Contemplation Sutra, where while everybody who gets born in the Pure Land to some extent achieves the same result, they all achieve the state of non-retrogression, and they're all guaranteed to be there for as long as it takes for them to become a Buddha, the teaching of the nine levels of rebirth still means that it matters. Somebody at the top of the top lands right in the middle of downtown Sakavati, right in front of the Buddha Amitabha, and after only hearing one sermon, achieves Buddhahood. Whereas the lowest of the low, where you find the butchers and the chicken slaughterers, they get reborn first into a lotus bud where they're locked up for 12 kalpas while I guess their consciousness gets cleaned up a bit. When it opens, they're on the outskirts of the Pure Land. They don't see the Buddha Amitabha. They see the two attendant bodhisattvas. And it actually takes them many, many eons of practice to finally become a Buddha. Okay, well, you can still ask, but the Pure Land is still, as you say, a fabulous place. So why should we care if we're there for one day or for numerous kalpas? Well, for this, you go back to the basic Mahayana motivation for practice, you know, the four great vows that you take when setting out upon the Mahayana path. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And so they bring up the question, if you really mean that, if you really do want to become a Buddha because of your compassion for other living beings, then you should care how long it takes you to get to that goal. Because the sooner you become a Buddha, the sooner you get to work saving other beings. So you should want to uh, be the highest of the high if you possibly can. Um, the layman Wang Zhixiu, uh, who wrote another Buddhist text, a compendium of essays called the Long Shu Jing Tu Wen, in many of his stories makes exactly that point. Get into practice, become a Buddha faster, get out there and start saving people. Um, and so this is how they answer the question in, in a way very different from the way the Kamakura Pure Land figures did uh, by saying, you aren't the lowest of the low. Most of us aren't people suffering deathbed terrors. Most of us are sort of middling practitioners who would agree that we probably can't achieve full Buddhahood on our own steam in this one lifetime. We can rely on Amitabha as a kind of safety net to get us where we need to go. But we should still care about the level of rebirth we attain, and therefore we should still exert ourselves in moral living and uh, taking and keeping precepts. Mm -hmm. Really, really rich uh, exposition of those nuanced ideas. So we still have to try. We still have to try. I hope that our listeners uh, who go up subway station escalators will never see them in the same way again after this wonderful metaphor. Well, if, they, if they go to the Wheaton, St Wheaton station on the red line yeah. in the DC system, yes, you will, you, you will look at that. You if you think about walking all the way up, <laughs> your heart will quail. Yeah. So you also have a really great chapter just on the practice of uh, Nianfu or Nebutsu, the practice of Buddha recollection. And one of the reasons it's so rich is because you take what appears to be, you know, maybe this kind of self-evident, simple practice, just a, a visualization or oral, oral recitation of the name of the Buddha Amitabha. But instead, you highlight the multiple forms that Nianfu practice has actually taken throughout the Pure Land 
uh, tradition in China. So um, could you give us just a sense of the highlights of this chapter and maybe a few examples of the variety of forms that uh, Nianfo has actually taken in this tradition? Right. Well, of course, most scholars agree that the word Nianfo um, begins as a translation of the uh, Sanskrit term uh, Buddhanusmirti, recollection of the Buddha, which is an active practice of meditation, of reflecting on the Buddha, or at a higher level, uh, actively visualizing the Buddha. So it can represent a very sort of elite practice. But as we've also known for quite a long time, you know, it was translated into Chinese in a couple of ways. Uh, one was the term charming uh, to hold the name. And, or more commonly, nianfo. And the word nian in Chinese is ambiguous. It can mean to contemplate something or to think about something. And when it's understood in that way, then you would understand nianfo to be a kind of contemplation of the Buddha. Now, in that regard, there are meditative texts like the Pratyutpana Samadhi Sutra, um, which talk about ways to help your meditation along. You know, sort of uh, here's what happens when you try to meditate, and here are problems you might run into, and here's some ways of addressing those problems. So, one of the things they recommend is if you are getting tired, if it's hard to hold the visualization, if you find your attention flagging, you can bring in the Buddha's name and simply contemplate the name as a sound image within your mind. Um, anybody who's ever tried this usually understands pretty intuitively that doing a visualization is a lot harder than just imagining a sound. You know, we all kind of subvocalize our own thoughts to ourselves all the time. So we all we, we all we know what it's like to have a voice going on in our head, and it's much easier to do than visualization. So they would say, as a, a kind of a way of treading water for a while while you get your wind back, just keep the name in mind. And so this was translated into Chinese with the, the term "charming" uh, to hold the name. You know, where "chur" is like the word "darani." to hold something in your mind. Uh, and so it was still a meditative practice. And it, they would also say, if you find you're really tired and you can't even do that, then saying the name out loud and just repeating it is a, an antidote to sleepiness. And you know, especially if you do it in a very loud voice, you, know, you can kind of keep yourself and your meditation on track. So what you find is in, even though this, veers into an actual audible oral repetition of the Buddha's name, it is still not understood as calling the Buddha, you know, kind of, hey, Amitabha, I'm over here, <laughs> right? It's still an adjunct to meditation and a way of fighting off drowsiness. But the other way of understanding the word nian in Chinese is to recite something out loud. In the Confucian tradition, it's the way you would test your memorization of a Confucian classic. You would recite it out loud, and that was also indicated by the word nian. So it could also mean this oral repetition as a standalone practice. Now, in the early tradition, um, Huiyuan very clearly sees this as a meditation. And if there's an oral component or even a 
kind of holding the name in mind as a sound image, it's still a meditation uh, which is aimed toward attaining a state of samadhi and a vision of the Buddhas appearing before you. Tan Luan says the name is efficacious because unlike other nouns, which are simple pointers, uh, the name of Amitabha is actually uh, contains the reality of the Buddha. The name is identical with what it refers to. And so he says that's where its power as an adjunct to meditation comes up, but he never states clearly that it's an oral practice that you do to elicit the other power of Amitabha. Uh, Dao Chua is frankly incoherent. <laughs> uh, you, you can actually, there is an English translation of his An Liji on the market. It's not a good translation. It's by Inagaki. It, uh, I, I took issue with it in many places, but if you read through it, you can get a kind of a gist. And you never really know quite what he's talking about. He sometimes seems to be talking about an oral repetition practice. He does talk about other power, but the entire last section of his work is devoted to achieving the state of samadhi. Mm -hmm. It's Shandao who really says clearly and unambiguously, this term nianfu means oral repetition, saying the saying the name out loud in order to elicit the other power of Amitabha so that Amitabha will take you to the pure land when you die. Shandao's the one who really makes all that very clear. Um, but it the term never loses all these other connotations. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very rich literature where people try to systematize various kinds of nianfu, both as oral repetition and as a meditative practice, both as eliciting Amitabha's other power and as achieving a state of samadhi. Again, it's an eclectic tradition. None of it is ever presented as being in opposition to anything else. It all works together, ideally. And so uh, a lot of the chapter is simply taken up with how these uh, practices are systematized, or even if they're systematized or sometimes presented in what I call the medicine chest approach as a whole panoply of practices that you can choose according to which one uh, is more suited to you at any particular time in your life. Mm -hmm. So we're almost out of time, but I want to make sure to squeeze in a question about your final chapter in the book, um, because you've touched on Hui Yuan a little bit here. And that chapter is a reexamination, right, of the purported first patriarch of Chinese Pure Land, you know, Lu Shan Hui Yuan, and discusses kind of um, in includes a discussion of his correspondence with the famed translator Kumara Jiva. So I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about that history and um, in particular some of the questions that you raise about Hui Yuan's uh, status as a Pure Land Buddhist and how maybe we could be called to perhaps rethink some of our assumptions about him in light of the historical evidence that you present. Okay. Well, I, I started many, many years ago just translating Huiyuan's correspondence with Kumarajiva on the practice of Buddha recollection, um, partly as a translation exercise for my own benefit, but also because he was the first patriarch in this lineage of 13 patriarchs, and he was seen as the sort of primal instigator of the whole Pure Land tradition in China. And what 
interested me was in that entire correspondence. And when I looked into his life history, as recorded in the Gaosong Zhuan, the biographies of eminent monks, I saw no indication that he practiced Pure Land in any way that anybody would recognize. So I really wondered about his status. And this started as an article called, Was Huiyuan a Pure Land Buddhist? And, and in the original article, I concluded he wasn't. And so I let it go at that. But I was at a conference in Hong Kong several years ago, and a scholar named uh, Chen Jianhuang, who I give a shout out to here, handed me a couple of his own books. And I took them back to the States, and I found in them an article on that he'd written on how the uh, lineage of 13 Pure Land patriarchs had evolved. I considered that article so important, I actually translated it, and it, the English translation of it uh, appeared in Pacific World. But the benefit of that to me was he had mentioned all of the texts uh, that proposed these lists of Pure Land patriarchs, and they all included biographies. So I began looking through it, and I saw that as you got away from uh, Lu Shan Huiyuan's time, different elements started creeping in. A whole alternative biography appeared. And in this alternative biography, he was a very devoted Pure Land practitioner who had images, uh, revelations of Amitabha, who practiced Nianfo diligently, who had uh, premonitions seven days before he died that he was going to be reborn in the Pure Land, and who died with the name of Amitabha on his lips which is completely different from the image you get in the Gaosong Juan. So that resolved the issue for me a lot, that the Huiyuan who became the first patriarch of the Pure Land tradition really isn't the historical Huiyuan, but a kind of constructed Huiyuan uh, whose image was developed over many centuries. Mm -hmm. So I would, yeah, I would certainly highly recommend that final chapter to listeners who want to delve deeper into the questions of the construction of the Pure Land patriarchy and these issues of lineage and history. Um, there's certainly so much more we could talk about. But as we wrap things up, I want to ask you if there's anything we haven't had the chance to discuss that you would like to mention to our listeners or highlight. No, I think we've touched on most of the really main points of the book. Uh, the only thing I would point to is there's there's also an appendix uh, that goes into how this lineage of 13 patriarchs was constructed. Uh, and the reason I think that's important is one of the arguments made early on against there being a separate Pure Land tradition was that this list of patriarchs was in a sense illegitimate because it did not represent a master disciple lineage. Um, and when I looked at the first iterations of this in the Northern Song Dynasty, I noticed that these were prefaced with the statement, over the last 800 years, these six patriarchs have appeared, which led me to understand these people understood from the very beginning that this was not a master disciple lineage and that there were time gaps between several of these figures. And so they never intended it to be that. So then the question became, well, what is this list of patriarchs? And in the way that it is used and deployed, I determined this was like just a list of people who are revered as the men, and they are all men, who shaped the tradition and defined its orthodoxy. That it really mm -hmm. matters that 
uh, Yunqi Zhuhong is in there, but Kuiji is not. That Shandao is in there, but Jingying Huiyuan is not. Even though a lot of them touched on Pure Land texts, it is a list that arose out of the community by acclamation in many. Uh, cases where people said these are the authors we look to to tell us what this tradition is, and so uh, as I put it in the book, they provide a kind of armature around which the tradition could take shape. They they gave it a shape and a direction. Right, and then also highlighting right that this notion of lineage itself is multifarious in the Chinese Buddhist tradition, that what lineage and patriarchy means in Chan Buddhism, for instance, is very different, as you highlight, from what uh, it means in Pure Land. And so highlighting that variety is really helpful, I think, for readers. Yeah, and it's also, uh, it it points to some of the issues we need to look at in translation. Uh, There is no word in any of these texts that talk about a master-disciple lineage, which in the Chinese text would be something like ji chang, you know, or a direct transmission. Instead, they're yeah. called zu, and you yeah. know, just go to the Han Yu Datsudian and look up the word zu, and one of the meanings that emerges is a revered figure within a tradition. So this is really a let us now praise famous men kind mm-hmm. kind of list. It's not it's mm-hmm. not a master disciple lineage as you would find in Chan or esoteric Buddhism. Yeah, excellent. So for our very last question, you mentioned this a little bit before, but please tell us a bit about what you're planning to do next, what you're working on now, what ideas are simmering uh, in your mind at the moment. Well, I'm actually working on two books right now. I've got two under contract. So one is for Shambhala, and it's going to be an introduction to Pure Land Buddhism for a general readership. And that will encompass uh, China, Korea, and Japan. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, I did a full translation of Taishu's uh, a treatise on the establishment of the pure land in the human realm. So I'm under contract with Bloomsbury Academic to publish a uh, translation and study of that. Um, I'm getting close to finishing that manuscript, and that's due at the end of the year. So it'll probably be published uh, maybe toward the end of the summer next year. Wonderful. And I hope that when it does come out, you will come back on the podcast and we can talk to you about it yeah. again. And as for what, <laughs> what's going forward, um, I, I'm kind of torn between two different things. Uh, I might go back to late Ming mm. gentry Buddhism because uh, before I got off onto all this, I had gotten about halfway through a translation of Yuan Hongdao's uh, book, Coral Grove, which is a record of conversations that he had with other gentry Buddhists and monks, which I found very revealing for anybody interested in the three teachings movement in the late Ming dynasty. But I also want at some time to do a translation of Zhu Hong's commentary on the Amitabha Sutra, uh, which is in two fascicles, because the first fascicle is a real systematic theology of Pure Land Buddhism. It's, it's a very organized outlay of Juhong's Pure Land thought, which I think would be very interesting to make available to the public. So I maybe I have enough steam left in me to do both of those uh, eventually, but I need to choose one <laughs> once all this other stuff is done. Well, regardless of which one you choose, I think that there's a lot of us who will be waiting with bated breath to read read your work. These are all like super promising and exciting projects. 
I want to, again, just congratulate you on this wonderful book. And thank you so much, Charles Jones, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Well, I've had a very good time. Thanks for having me. Great. And thank you also to our listeners. This has been the New Books in Buddhist Studies podcast. I'm Lena Vercherie. Thanks for listening. And please join us next time. <laughs>